Micah 4, and we'll read the chapter and then uh, have our Bible study here. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us about His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between many peoples, and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of, our God, of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from now on and forever. And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have assembled against you, who say, Let her be polluted, and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand His purpose. For He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion." For your horns I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that they may devote to the Lord their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of these prophecies concerning the judgment and the desolation that is coming upon the people, Yet, even in those times in which your wrath is being so clearly expressed in your hatred and detestation of sin, but that there's also the hope of redemption and salvation uh, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that though you are a God who hates sin and who will by no means clear the guilty, uh, who is angry with the wicked every day, we are grateful that you are also a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And no uh, way is your faithfulness more clearly seen than in bringing uh, Christ into the world that we might have salvation and life through Him. So we pray that, uh, Lord, you might encourage us tonight and strengthen us. Lord, that we might put our hope in Him and see uh, that you do have good things in store for those that love you uh, and that you will give to us the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our soul. So we thank you for your word, and we pray that you be with us and teach us tonight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in chapter 4, there is a relenting or a, uh, a break from what has been the theme of Micah so far, which is judgment. Uh, he's pronounced judgment. He's clearly exposed the sins of the people and shown what he's going to do to them because of all of their wickedness. And we remember in chapter 3, verse 12, that he predicted that Zion will be plowed as a field. 
Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. This is what's going to happen to Jerusalem on account of the sins of the nation. That this city that was the chief city, uh, their capital city, the city of their glory and honor, was going to be completely brought to nothing. That it would be like a field or like a forest. You wouldn't know that people dwelt there before because it's going to be completely destroyed. And this will happen in due time through the uh, Babylonians, who will be the uh, instrument that God uses to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, then in chapter 4, you know, lest the remnant and the faithful who are among them, because in every generation, even in Micah's generation, there are those who are faithful to the Lord, though they are few and far between, such as it was in the days of Elijah, when there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. There was a remnant that was chosen by grace, though from Elijah's perspective, it seemed that he was the only one left, right? They had killed the prophets, they had demolished the altars, and he said, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life, right? He felt completely isolated and alone in the midst of all the sin and carnage that was taking place there among his own people, and yet God assured him that this was not the case, that though faith was very rare to be found, and though faithfulness was rare, there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, who still remained faithful and true to the Lord. And though Micah is writing and exposing the sins, and this is what is common there amongst Israel, yet there also is the remnant. And the remnant, they need to be encouraged. They need to have their head lifted up. And this shows us the kindness, the grace, the mercy of God, that even in the pronouncement of judgment, which is why Micah was raised up, to expose the sins of the people and to announce the judgment of God coming upon them, yet he also gives to the remnant Uh, words of encouragement of God's faithfulness that God will not forsake His promises, but what God has purposed for Israel, He ultimately will bring these things about. And all of these promises, these peace, the peacefulness that is promised to them in the latter days, all of these are fulfilled in Christ, right? And this is why God, though He might have uh, cast His people aside, He may have justly completely renounced Israel and Judah, destroyed them and brought them to nothing, completely pulverized them as he did other nations throughout the history of the world. Yet he continued to bear with them and he restored them because God had made these promises to the fathers that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And it was necessary for the Christ to come through them. And so he is reminding them that though things seem very bleak, though it seems impossible that God in this current scenario and situation could fulfill His promises, yet they are reminded that with God all things are possible and that God will bring these things about and that there are better days coming for the people of God. So long as we, through faith and patience, wait for the promises of God, inherit the promises of God, which is what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 6. We must be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. And so, here he is laying out or unfolding these promises to the faithful, not only in their generation, but in every generation, of what God will do for His people, right? For those who love Him. So let's pick up there in verse 1 with this message of hope. He says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Here, in the later days, in the last days, right, this is going to happen in the days of the Messiah. During the days of Christ, 
from the first coming of Christ and what He accomplished, and then through all the way till His second coming of Christ, that this is what God is going to do. He is going to surely bring this about. The mountain of the house of the Lord. Here, He doesn't mean this literally and physically, but He means this in the true spiritual sense. The mountain of the house of the Lord is the church of Jesus Christ. We are the temple of God. It is the people of God. And that uh, true reality, spiritual reality, was uh, typified or communicated to them through the symbol of Jerusalem and the hill of Zion, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Well, God will, in the future, in the later days, the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, it will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above all of the hills. Meaning that the kingdom of Christ will have preeminence over every other kingdom in this world. The mountain of Christ, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be raised above all other mountains, and every other hill will be brought low, and it will all be subjected to the kingdom of Christ, to the rule of Christ. It will have supremacy over all things here being the true temple of the Lord, which is the church of Jesus Christ. He dwells among His people, and we are His people. This is where Christ can be found. Just as, again, there symbolically or typically in the temple that was on the Mount Zion there at Jerusalem, there the presence of God was known among the people of Israel in a symbolic way. Not that God literally dwelt or was confined to the temple on earth. But this is where his presence was known, was seen, was communicated to them through this visible token of his love and his choosing of them and them being and taking and adopting them as his own possession, as his own people. God dwelt among them and the temple was this token given to them of the very presence of God. But the true people of God or the true temple of God is His church, right? It, it is His people, and this is where His dwelling place is found. He dwells among His people, and this is why the temple or the church will have supremacy over all things with Christ as the head. He will subject all things to Christ, and He has given Him the head over all things, even over the church. Let's see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 we'll see that in the New Testament, the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, use the temple as an example or illustration of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation... And another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward." If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
So they are very clearly, when he's talking about the temple of God, he doesn't mean a literal physical building in Jerusalem. He's referring to the church, to the people, the people of God. This is the temple of God. This is where God's dwelling is. It is now on earth among his people. This is where he dwells. That is what you are, he says, and that is what we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Second Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there, we, the church, are the temple of the living God. God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Also, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 21. It says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord. Here, this is speaking of the church, which includes the Jews and Gentiles being built up into one body or into one building that is a holy temple of the Lord. So here, when he's speaking of the mountain of the house of the Lord, that this will come about in the last days, that it will be raised above the hills this is referring to the church, right? To the true people of God. And the result is, he says, the people will stream to it. People will stream into the kingdom of God, into the church. And these peoples will come not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he's foretelling or predicting the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church or into the people of God, which is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, that this wall of separation that separated the Jews from the Gentiles has been torn down, and now all of them, Jew and Gentile, are being built up and fitted into one holy temple of the Lord. And the peoples are streaming into this temple. Right, And this is the way it is. The kingdom of this world will ultimately be subjected to the kingdom of Christ. His kingdom will have supremacy over all things. And here, the mountain of the Lord will be raised up and it will become the chief mountain. So though it looks like at this time, the promises of God are, uh, they're failing. They're, how will God bring these things about? How will any of this be accomplished? Yet God is assuring His people that His purposes will succeed. And His purpose is ultimately to give to Christ all of the nations, that the whole world will be inherited by Christ and His kingdom will have supremacy over everything. And though it seems like this is impossible, though it seems that it is uh, something that will be thwarted because of all that is taking place, both the sins of Israel and Judah, but also the destruction that will come from these foreign nations, how will God fulfill all of these promises 
when it seems impossible to do so, yet they are assured here by the Lord that it will certainly come about. It will come about, and God is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. But God is always faithful to do everything that He has promised. Verse 2, Many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us about His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here, the nations will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he, God, can teach us his ways, so that we can come, become acquainted with the word of God, with the will of God, right, with who the true God is and the way of salvation. These are the nations who at this time are living in darkness, who are living and worshiping, serving their idols, who don't know who God is. They are without God. They are without hope. They are passing their days away in futility, in darkness, in idolatry, in unbelief. And they do not know who the true God is. Yet in this latter time, the last days, many of the nations will come and they will say and inquire who is the true Lord. And they will come to a true knowledge and a true understanding of the true God in the way of salvation and how to be reconciled to Him. And this is why they are coming to the house of the Lord. They're coming for salvation, to know how to be reconciled to God. They will see the glory and the blessing of being united to Jesus Christ the glory of the truths of the gospel, of the word of God. They'll see the ordinances that Christ has established and given to his church, how wonderful they are, how they teach such great spiritual truths that are communicated to the people, right? They will see these things and they will come to the house of the Lord, which is, again, the church, the spiritual people of God, that God may teach them his ways. This is the way salvation has gone out into the world, right? It is through the, the uh, believers taking the gospel into areas where people are living in darkness, right, where they are worshiping idols, and then they begin to teach them the will of God, teach them the word of God. And by the grace of God and the purpose of God, God will convert many of those people, so that those people will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. They will say, let us go so that God can teach us His ways. They're not doing this by their own will. They're not doing this by their own strength and power and their own reason. It is God's grace and mercy in sending the gospel to them and in sending His Spirit before them to convert them upon the hearing of the preaching of the Word of God. They want Him to teach them His ways. And this is what Christ does. Jesus Christ teaches through His Word. He teaches the nations through His Holy Word, through His messengers that He sends with His Word in their mouth, and then as they proclaim the Word of God, who is the one teaching them? Christ is. Christ is proclaiming it to them. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Here... We remember that Christ is the ultimate, final, full revelation of God. He is the prophet of God who teaches us the will of God in a full and final way. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, 
in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, in the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, Christ, is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. God spoke through the fathers to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and ways, but in these last days He has spoken through His Son and has given to us the full, final, complete revelation of His will in the person of His Son. And this is the treasure that the church possesses. We possess the true knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know how a man can be reconciled to God, how a man can have his sins forgiven, how a man can be made righteous in the sight of God so that he has a good standing with God. We know the will of God, how to live a life pleasing to God, how to obey God and what uh, His commandments are and how to walk in a way that is pleasing to Him. We know about uh, the life to come. We know about heaven and hell. We know that there is a reward for the righteous and there will be eternal punishment for the wicked. Who else knows these things? We do, right? The church does, right? The true church of Jesus Christ. Not the false church, not the Roman Catholic church. They have all their corruptions. But the true church of Christ possesses this knowledge, this understanding. And this is the knowledge and understanding that the nations are coming to, to the church, so that they may be taught the way of God, the will of God. Just as the Ethiopian eunuch, when he was speaking with Philip, he says, how can I understand unless someone guides me, unless I have a teacher to teach me the will of God and to help me understand the word that I'm reading, how can I understand these things? And so what did he do? He wanted Philip to teach him, to instruct him. And this is the way the gospel spreads into the nations, right? Into the nations, it goes in such a way. We have this knowledge, and this is the church's greatest treasure. The great treasure that we possess is the knowledge of the gospel, the salvation of God found in the Word of God. That is the treasure that we must protect with all of our life, right? Because if we lose that, what do we have? We got nothing, right? We're, we're just a social club, right? We might as well uh, start knitting sweaters, you know, do whatever. It doesn't matter because we have absolutely nothing. What we have to offer is the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, how to be reconciled to God, and that can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what the nations so desperately need, because so long as they are worshiping their idols, they remain dead in their trespasses and sins. And it is only through this true knowledge of God that one can be made righteous in his sight, be reconciled to God, and live a life that is pleasing to him. Now here, in one sense, it is speaking of the nations as saying, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, as if they are coming to the mountain of the Lord. But then also, at the end of the verse, it says, from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, that it goes forth from Zion and from Jerusalem, right? And both of these are true. We do know that after uh, Acts chapter 2, the gospel, when it went to the nations, where did it begin? It started in Jerusalem. It started in Zion, and then it went forth from there into the nations. 
But then as it goes into the nations and as they hear this message and God is opening their eyes, then the response of the people is, let us go to the house of the Lord, to the people of God, so that we can know and be taught the will of God. So both of those things are true. Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Matthew 16, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. There it is this confession of Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the rock upon which the church is built. And this is the knowledge and understanding upon which we proclaim to the nations how to be reconciled to God, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 3, Micah 4, 3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Here, he being Christ will judge the nations. He will judge many peoples. He will render decisions for mighty distant nations. Again, this is through His Word. Through His Word and the establishment of His Word amongst His people, right? As the church spreads and as the gospel goes and people believe the gospel, then those are believers in Christ, right? They are subjects of His. They adhere to the Word of Christ. And as that goes into many distant nations, Christ is now rendering judgments in those nations, giving decisions in those nations through His Word, because His Word reveals to us His will, His judgments, right? What He declares to be true and right. Doesn't the Word of God make a distinction between good and evil, right? Between truth and falsehood. The Bible is doing this constantly. And when the Bible does that, who is it coming from? Whose judgments? whose decisions are being given in the Word of God. Well, it's not the opinions of men. These aren't the judgments and counsel of just very holy, pious men. This is the very judgments of God that God is declaring concerning this truth and this error, this behavior and that behavior, morals, values, ethics. The Bible is doing this constantly. And this is what Christ does. It is His Word. And as His Word goes into the world, as His doctrines and His commandments are taught, then they become the measuring line in other nations of truth and righteousness, of what is good and what is right and what is evil. And men will be judged by His Word, even in distant lands, He says, right? even to the very ends of the earth, which, again, during the times of Micah, for them, it must seem like an impossibility because during their days, the days of Micah, it's not even happening in Israel that 
that the word of God is flourishing in this way, right? It seems as if there is no judgment being made, that the people are breaking loose into every kind of sin imaginable. And yet here they are assured that not only will this be realized in Israel, but even in distant lands, this knowledge, this salvation, right? The word of God will go forth and it will be powerful and effective throughout all of the world. Even today, this is happening, right? Because we are a distant land, are we not? From Jerusalem to Shawnee, Oklahoma is 6,854 miles. You can do a simple Google search to discover that. That is a very distant land, right? The people of Micah's day wouldn't have even known that this part of the world existed, that there were even people here that far away. And yet, what is happening even right now? Is Christ not rendering his judgments among us? Is he not making decisions among us concerning what is true and right, declaring to us from his word, the way of salvation, his doctrines, his commandments, right? His truths. These things are being done even now. His word is here. He is making his judgments between people and rendering decisions for mighty distant lands. 2,000 years later, from the time of Christ, from the time of Micah, we're talking 2,700 years later. 2,700 years from the time of Micah. This is happening. 6,000 miles away. And yet everything that God promised to them, we are seeing fulfilled even in our own midst. And it is a reminder to us that not one of His words will ever fail. Nothing will fail, even something as impossible and improbable for their own audience to even imagine something like this. And yet, this is exactly what is happening today. Now, the result of this word of Christ and the salvation, the gospel going forth into the nations is that they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war." Peace. Peace is the result of the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in this life, this peace will be known among believers, right? Amongst the church, that the gospel unites us together into one body, that we're knit together and bound together in love for one another. And therefore, we are not at war with one another any longer, right? When we are reconciled to God, we are knit and bound together into the same body of Christ. And even people, various groups, various tribes and, and uh, warring parties, right? there are people who for years, their ancestors were at odds, were at war, they fought, they killed each other, slaughtered each other for many years. And yet there'll be one person from this tribe Say it's uh, Indians, you know, like the Indians that used to be here. They, were, they loved to murder people all the time. This is what they loved to do. They were always fighting with each other, warring with one another. These types of things happened, right? It's happened uh, all across the globe uh, throughout the history of the world. And yet you will have a person from one tribe and a person from another tribe, and both of them are converted. Both of them believe the gospel. And what happens to those two people who have been at odds with each other for a thousand years and now... They're in the same church. They're in the same body. They're brothers in Christ. They love one another. They care for one another. They're not trying to kill each other. Now they're doing good to them, right? They're loving them. They're meeting their needs and doing whatever they can to be of assistance to them. That's what he means here, that they're going to uh, turn their swords into plowshares. They're going to turn their spears into pruning hooks. Instead of using these things as implements of war, of violence, they're going to be used to cultivate for growth, for life, 
for blessing, right? To do those kinds of things. And they will not fight and war against each other anymore. And certainly this happened uh, in the times of the apostles because the Jews had many enemies around them. And yet the apostles went into many of those cities, people that they had been at war with for many, many years throughout their history. And they preached the gospel to them, and men were converted there, and then they had peace and harmony with one another. So this is the result of the preaching of the gospel. And this happens now in this life in the church. Um, Now, we won't have peace with everyone because there are those who are enemies of the gospel and enemies of the cross. And so we still will have disunity with them. But ultimately... This will be realized on the earth when Christ destroys all the wicked and there, then there will only be the righteous and there will be perfect peace and harmony between them. But we ought to pursue this within the church, right? Within the church, and certainly we want to live at peace with all men so far as it's possible for us to do, but sometimes that is impossible to do, right? Such as the Apostle Paul, even our Lord Jesus Christ was a peaceful man and yet his enemies would not let him have peace. Luke 1, 17. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Here in describing the ministry of John the Baptist, who was preaching the gospel to the people, one of the outcomes of his ministry is that it is going to reconcile uh, men together. Men together. Luke 1, 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children, uniting them together in a common faith, in a common bond of unity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this happens not only with natural fathers with their natural children, but even also amongst those who are strangers, right? Those who formerly were at odds or enemies with one another. Also, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 14. (coughs) Ephesians 2, 14. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. So there, the enmity between Jew and Gentile that existed and was necessarily a part of the Old Covenant, right? This was one of the aspects of the Old Covenant was there was a dividing wall of separation between the Jews and the Greeks and that this produced enmity between them, but now it's been abolished through the body of Christ. And this wall is no longer there, so now the two groups are reconciled and they live at peace and harmony with one another. Okay, verse 4. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here, this sitting under the vine and under the fig tree, this is a a sign and symbol of a peaceful, tranquil life. To live in this way, to be at peace, to not be harassed, 
to not have enemies constantly uh, berating you and coming after you. This is the way that we want to live, a quiet, peaceful life in all godliness, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. They can sit in a peaceful, quiet place in the open country, right? Not behind doors, not behind bars, right? They're not behind walls because they're afraid of enemies, but they're dwelling in safety and security. And this was realized in Israel's history, but it was ultimately a symbol of the spiritual rest and the safety that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, that none of our enemies can ever harm us, right? None of them can uh, do us any harm. When Israel as a nation, when they had times of rest and peace, they would sit under their fig trees and under their vines as a sign of the tranquility of life that they were experiencing. This was during the times in which they were faithful to the Lord, but then during their times of disobedience, then they were constantly harassed by enemies. They couldn't sit out in the open country because someone might kidnap them and take them over and enslave them or kill them and, and take and steal all their possessions and their wife and their children. It says in 1 Kings 4.25, it says, So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. During the reign of Solomon they experience this peaceful, tranquil, this blessed life, right? Sitting there in this way. And this is what he's using here, this illustration or this symbol to describe the spiritual state of the people of God under the administration of Christ. With Christ as our king, spiritually speaking, we sit under our vines and under our fig tree with no one to make us afraid. What can any man do to us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one can do any of these things. So who is there to terrify us and to make us afraid if Christ is on our side? We have complete tranquility, complete safety and peace in our spirits, in our souls, because we know that in Him, all of our sins have been forgiven and we have been reconciled to God and that we are righteous in His sight. This is what Christ does for us. Verse 5, though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Here, this is what is true in the nations, in the world, even in our own day. People walk in the name of his God. Whatever God or whatever religion is the dominant religion of this land or this territory of this people or that people, then the people walk according to their God, right? Whatever their religion requires of them, this is what they do, right? They do those kinds of things. And this was one of the great scandals found during uh, the life of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah brings this forward to show how wicked the people were. That what they were doing wasn't even seen in the nations, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Therefore I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons, sons, I will contend. For cross the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar, and observe closely, and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There, has it ever been seen that a nation would abandon their God and not follow their God and do what their God says? And yet, what was Israel doing? Those who worshipped Baal were not doing this. Those who worshipped Molech were not doing this. Those who worshipped uh, the gods of the Babylonians or Assyrians, they were faithful to their gods. Yet Israel constantly exchanged the glory that was theirs, which is the true knowledge of God, to go and worship that which was worthless. And no other nation did that. They were faithful and true to their false gods, yet these people had the true knowledge of God, and yet they refused to walk in His ways. So it is commonly seen and known that whatever religion a person adheres to, whatever God they follow, they walk according to the customs, according to the, the laws, according to the doctrines of that religion, right? Whether it is true or false. And they are all false if it's not the true God in the Bible. Well, who is our God? The Lord is our God. And who is our King but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So if He is our God and if Christ is our King, then in whose way should we walk? Whose doctrine should we follow? Whose commandments should we obey? We should follow the name of the Lord our God. We should walk in His ways. Muslims walk in the name of their God. The Buddhists follow their gods. The Hindus follow theirs. The Catholics follow theirs. They do all of these things. They obey them. They do their commandments. Well, we are Christians. And as Christians, we bear the name of Christ, so we should walk in the ways of Christ. We should obey Him and walk in His holy ways. Verse 6, In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forevermore. Here, these ones that are brought into His church that constitute and make up the people of God. He describes them in this way. Who is it that he gathers into his church? The lame, the outcast, the afflicted. These are the ones that Christ takes for himself. He's not going after the strong, the mighty, the wise, those who have a great reputation, those who who are uh, something in this present world. But it is the lame, it is the outcast, and it is the afflicted. These are the ones that he takes as his own. And these are ways of describing the spiritual condition of the people. Poor in spirit. They are poor in spirit. They have a lame spirit, an afflicted spirit. This is what they are, spiritually speaking. And these are the ones that Christ takes unto himself. Not the self-righteous. The self-righteous do not consider themselves lame. They do not consider themselves afflicted. They don't think that they need anything. They think everything is fine and dandy, like the church at Laodicea, who thought they were rich. They did not need anything, is what they believed was true of them, but they did not realize that they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The true condition of all men is that we are all spiritually lame. We are spiritually beggars. We are spiritually afflicted. We are spiritually blind, spiritually dead, spiritual lepers. Right? This is what is true of all men. The problem, though, is that most men in the natural state, so long as we are blinded to the reality in our pride and arrogance and hubris before God, we all consider ourselves to be what? 
Wonderful, right? We are of noble. We are great. Why wouldn't God want us, right? Actually, I'm doing God a favor by letting him sit in my council, right? And be my God. This is the way the common man thinks. This is what was seen in the Pharisee, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, right? And he expounds all of his virtues and all that he does for God. And God ought to be very happy to have such a fellow in his company. This is the way the natural man thinks. But when our eyes are opened and we come to understand the depth of our sin and of our depravity, God afflicts us in that sense. We become lame in that sense. In a spiritual sense, we see the true reality of what we are before God, that we are diseased, that we are filthy, that we are dead, that we have nothing by which to commend ourselves to God. And it is when a man comes into this understanding, this knowledge, this state, that then what does he do? He cries out to God for mercy. Then he becomes like the tax collector who would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when a person is like that, Christ takes them as his own, right? These are the ones that he takes and he makes these people a remnant. He makes them into a strong nation, a mighty people of God. And then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever more. These are the ones that Christ takes to himself. Matthew chapter 11. So commonly we think, oh, we don't want to be, no one wants to be lame. Neither physically nor, you know, just a lame person, right? No one wants to be lame. No one wants to be afflicted. No one wants to be an outcast. But if we want salvation, we have to be those things spiritually speaking. We must see the reality of our own sin. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. It says, Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the words of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's what Micah is talking about here. right? He's meaning this in the spiritual sense, the spiritual reality. This people, these outcasts, these misfits, these afflicted, lame people, spiritually speaking, these are the ones that Christ takes as his own, and he makes them into a strong, in, in a, a strong nation. Right? We are so detestable right, in our sinful state. And yet Christ takes us and he makes us into a temple, right? into a holy temple of God. He makes us into pres- uh, precious stones and he places us there through his power. Right? This is what he does for us. We go from being outcast to becoming a strong nation. Not just a strong nation amongst other strong nations, but we will become the strong nation that dominates and rules over all other nations through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through the victory that he will give to us. Then verse 8, As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Here, the tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, there amongst the flock, 
which are the remnant, the people, there is the tower of the flock. There amongst the daughter of Zion, there is the hill of the daughter of Zion. And I take this to be a reference to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He is the tower of the flock. He is the one who provides safety, who provides security for the flock of God. He is the hill amongst the daughters of Zion. He is the preeminent one in the church. He is the head over all, and he is the head over the church. In terms of the temple, he is the chief cornerstone upon which everything else rests and resides. So he has preeminence in the church. We don't have preeminence in the church. Christ has preeminence in the church. And any man who seeks to take that preeminence from him, who seeks to set himself up as an equal to Christ in the church, such as the Pope, he will find that there is no sharing of his glory. Christ and Christ alone is the tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion. And to you, to Christ, it will come. And then what will come to him? The former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. The kingdom will be given to Christ. It will come to him and then he will rule and reign and have dominion over all things. Verse 9. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you or has your counselor perished? The agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. Like a woman in childbirth, from now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Here, having made these promises to them, comforted them with the victory and the fulfillment of the purposes of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet this is still distant to the future in terms of the perspective of Micah and those that he is writing to. In the meantime, there are 700 years that are, needs to pass until Christ is brought into the world. And during that time, the existence of the people, the people of Israel, will be like a woman giving uh, uh, birth to a child, like one who is in labor. God will fulfill these promises, but they're not going to come quickly from a human perspective, nor are they going to come easily. But they must endure and they must persevere through all of these things. And because of the sins of the nation, there must be judgment that comes before Christ is revealed, before he is brought into the world. So the blessings of the Messiah will come, but not without much hardship and much difficulty. And here the hardship is like a woman writhing in labor to give birth. This is what Israel will be like during the time uh, before the coming of Christ and during this period of time. And they will be taken to Babylon. Judah will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. They will be taken captive into Babylon. But God will restore them and bring them back and redeem them so that he can fulfill his purposes in Christ. But that judgment will come upon them and they will have to bear it. And they will have to maintain and be faithful to the Lord in the midst of many, many tribulations, in the midst of these many, many hardships. Verse 11. And now many nations have assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. Here, this is, again, he's speaking both of the future of what will happen through Christ. And then he's speaking here to the present, to the people there, and what is happening to them. 
in what the nations are doing and what they're saying to them. The nations are assembling against Israel. And they're saying, let her be polluted. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. The desire of the nations, especially those that surround them, is to see Judah and Israel be completely destroyed and ruined. For them to cease to be a people. For that land to no longer be occupied by them. For Jerusalem to be destroyed, uh, you know, stripped bare. And for it never to be restored and to be built again. That's what they're saying. They are assembling against them. They're plotting against them. They're bringing these reproaches against them. This is the desire of the nations that surround them. The Philistines, certainly the Philistines, they were mortal enemies of the Israelites. They would have loved for them to be destroyed. It's kind of like what we're seeing over in Israel right now with Hamas and Israel. They hate each other, right? They want to destroy one another. That's not unique to our own day. This has been common through many generations. We know that the Edomites didn't have, uh, there was no love lost between them and the Israelites. The Philistines, the Phoenicians were there. Uh, then, of course, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Many nations surrounded them, the Egyptians, who wanted to see their ruin and their demise. And they taunt them and they say, they gloat over them when God's judgment comes upon them. And it seems that these people are coming to a ruin. They're coming to a bitter end, and now we're not going to have to put up with them anymore. But then verse 12, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand His purposes. For He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. These nations do not understand the purposes of God. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. And what is God's ultimate purpose for this present world? That Jesus Christ would have supremacy over all things. That He will sit His Son, He will sit Christ upon this eternal throne, and to Him all the nations will give homage, and that they will bow their knee in subjection to Jesus Christ. And what is the nation from which the Christ came? What people was He born from? He was born from the Israelites, from the Jews. So. How can they be destroyed when Christ has not been born yet? Christ has not come through them yet. That's why Mike is saying they don't understand the purposes of God. They don't know the plans of the Lord. These are plans that God had planned before the world was even created and that God announced at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to bring the seed of the woman into the world to crush the head of the serpent. And then God reiterated these promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 that it would be in his seed, in Abraham's seed, that all the nations would be blessed. And then God reiterated this further to David, that one of his sons, his descendants, would sit on his throne and would be given this eternal throne. God has this purpose and plan to bring Christ into the world. And according to the flesh, he will be a descendant of Abraham. He will be of the nation of Israel. So how can Israel cease to be a nation if Christ has not been brought into the world yet? It's not going to happen. So whatever they do, whatever they plan and plot against them, they're not going to succeed. Right? The nations will be fooled. They will be overturned because they don't understand the thoughts and purposes of God. That God has determined to bring Christ into the world through this people. And so long as that promise still waits into the future, then there's nothing that they can do to destroy them. Right? That God will preserve them, He will restore them, and ultimately He will bring His Christ into the world through them. And we know from our perspective 
that this certainly has happened. And this is what's happening, you know, in every generation. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Isn't that what they're doing in Micah chapter 4? They're raging. They're plotting in vain. And who are they plotting against? The Lord and against His anointed one. And this is why the nations hated Israel so much and why even today there still seems to be this hatred that exists against those people because this is the nation that God chose to bring His Christ into the world through them. So there is this inborn hatred in wicked men of them because of their hatred of Christ. Psalm 2 verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, though they may try, and though it may seem that they're going to succeed, we can rest assured that they will never succeed, and that the purpose of the Lord will stand, and it will be accomplished. Verse 13, so God, what He does is He gathers the nations, those that are opposed to Him, He gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. And then in verse 13, He says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Here, this is fulfilled both, I think, in the physical nation of Israel because God did bring them back to their land and He did give them strength and power to reestablish their nation, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild their walls. He gave them the power to do that, the ability to do that, so that the Christ could come through them. But also it is true of the church, of the true people of God, the true spiritual Israel, that we will also thresh the nations that we will pulverize them into the ground. He will make our horns like iron and our hooves like bronze. Right, The horns of the bull are a sign of His strength. And they're strong enough with whatever they're made of, bone or whatever, cartilage. I don't know what a horn is made of, but you, know, you don't want to get gored by one of them. But imagine if one of those bulls had horns of iron. And if their hooves were made of bronze, they could really pulverize you, right? You wouldn't want to contend with that animal. Well, this is what God will do for His people against their enemies. And they're, they're not going to succeed in destroying and overcoming the purposes of God. Because not only is God's purpose to give Christ the world, that He would inherit the nations, but also that we in Christ will also inherit the world, right? We will be heir of the world as well. And then we will devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. The money, the resources, the unjust gain that they have, we will take it and then it will be devoted to the Lord. And certainly that was, again, fulfilled in part in Israel. For example, when they were restored to their land, <coughs> the uh, Persians gave them money gave them an open coffer to rebuild Jerusalem, right? To rebuild the temple, to rebuild their walls. Pagans funded the rebuilding of this true place of worship. And so in that sense, they took their unjust gain, they took their wealth, and they built and devoted it to the Lord. And then certainly this will happen with Christ at the end of the age in which all will be given to Him and it will all be devoted 
to the Lord. All right, so there you go, Micah chapter 4. We'll stop there for tonight, and then we'll pick up uh, in chapter 5 next week, which is uh, very uh, commonly known, uh, probably the most uh, popular or well-known verse in the book of Micah is from chapter 5, chapter 5.